0: Sisters and brothers, last week we introduced the Bible's teaching on the providence of God. The Bible reveals that providence is the sovereign God's fatherly care over creation and you and me. And we saw that the Heavenly Father graciously and actively cares for us as a minister, bringing compassion and love into our trouble and most of all giving us Jesus because God so loves the world. He is with us always to assure us that life is not run by chance or karma or chemical reactions but by God the Father who is the giver of all good gifts and who knows us by name and through Jesus Christ his Son is with us so that all things work together for our salvation. But we also shared last week together that at times, the only way we can rest assured in the Father's care is by faith. Because we don't always see how providential God is. We don't always see it. We suffer loss. We carry burdens. We wonder why. We cry out, where, God, where are you? Does God really provide for us? And we confess that sometimes we have our doubts. But what's the alternative? If not a providential, fatherly, loving, and caring God, then what? So today we look at what many say is the way the world works today, and that's the way of karma. Have you heard of that? Do you see these jokes? They go around and and you look for that, and do you see something happen and judge that you or another deserved it and chalk it up to karma? You know, I'm going to guess that a generation ago, few people heard of that word or ever used that word karma. But now we see and hear it all the time. Well, what is it? Well, it comes from Hinduism and Buddhism. And in short, karma assumes that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Whatever you do comes back to you. Karma teaches that you get what you deserve, in a nutshell. Now I know, yes, the Apostle Paul at one time, at one place says you reap what you sow, and there are consequences to our attitudes and actions, but karma reduces these to reward or punishment for us. While when the Bible speaks of uh, reaping and sowing, it does that as an encouragement for us to bless others in Jesus' name. So here's the difference. And so we listen, for instance, to Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, and maybe you watch that over the holidays. And in the middle of that story, when there's a, turn, a good turn of events for her, what does she sing? For here you are, standing there, loving... I can't sing like Julie Andrews. But, so you have to imagine that. But whether or not you should... So somewhere in my youth or childhood... I must have done something good. Right? Karma. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. See how it begins to seep into the way we think. And now I feel it's coming more and more because of Taylor Swift, who has profound influence on this new generation and now she sings about karma and attempts to bless her concert goers with karma at the end of her shows but if you listen you know that karma is not about blessing but about punishment she sings because karma is the thunder rattling your ground Karma's on your scent like a bounty hunter. Karma's going to track you down. Because karma is my boyfriend. Karma is a god. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? So karma is seeping into our thoughts and even our faith. And that's what I want to warn us against today. It seeps into us mainly when we look to judge other people. When the disciples encounter a blind man, they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? But Jesus said there's no such thing as karma. He said that this man's trouble was an occasion for God's glory. And in Luke 13, when injustice got some neighbors defiled and then murdered at the hand of Pilate, and when a local tragedy occurred killing 18 others, Jesus said, don't be so quick to judge that they must have done something to deserve this. Instead, he said, this evil should lead you to repent before the Lord. The message There is no impersonal force of judgment, but there is a personal God. And we are made for a right relationship with the Lord. So use even life's tragedies and failings to return to your heavenly Father. And then even elsewhere, Jesus says, the rain falls On the just and the unjust, whether for good or ill. No karma, but there is a God. So, Job's story helps us see karma for the false belief it is. Job's story is our story, and it is an uncomfortable story. Few consider Job one of their favorites. And although Job is described as a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil, nobody names their baby boys Job. Nobody wishes to go through what Job suffered. He suffers ruin. He suffers an encounter with Satan. He suffers loss physically, materially, and relationally, and it's not his fault. What does Job's story reveal about God? Is God indifferent, uncaring, unable to help us? Well, if you listen to the Bible reading, you understood that that's not Satan's accusation. What Satan is accusing God of is being too good. No wonder Job is upright, he says to God. You shower him with blessings. You bought him out. God, you've bribed him. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. So here's a clue that Satan is all about karma. That karma isn't a harmless word, but something closer to the devil that we should shun and avoid even using. Satan assumes Job is only blameless and upright because he wants to get on God's good side, like a transaction. If I do good things, God will be good to me. Or, it's more sinister form, I better do good, or else God is going to be out to get me. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. As Job suffers, he doesn't know why, and neither do his friends. They come to be with him to share his suffering. They want to minister him like we talked about last week. But they imagine that Job's sufferings are some kind of karma not part of God's larger providential plan. They can't imagine that God is large enough to absorb this grief and these spiritual battles. They chalk it up to karma. Listen to Zophar's words, one of Job's friends. Job, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then... Free of fault, you will lift up your face, you will stand firm without fear, but the eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Do you get it? They're saying, Job, be better. If you do good things, God will be good to you. Because we know that if you do evil, you're going to be in trouble. Karma. But let me remind you, these are the words of Job's friends. God is angered at their words. At the end of the book, the Lord says to Job's friends, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. You can't minister to another person with karma. So the message, karma is not a thing. Karma is a cruel spin on life. It is impersonal. It robs God of his due as sovereign and providential. It lets us avoid relating to the Lord God. It tricks us into thinking life is up to me, that I answer only to myself, whether blame or reward. And so we should refrain from using it, even in jest even as a joke. So, how do we live by faith in the providence of God? We start by recognizing that all goodness and blessing comes from the hand of our Heavenly Father. Undeserved, unmerited, by grace from a loving God. The opposite of karma is grace. And we'll find more assurance, more ability to trust in the providential hand of God, even in the hard seasons of life, when we practice grace. Practice receiving it, and practice sharing it. The Bible talks about grace, not karma. And talks about grace in two ways. Common grace, and saving grace. Saving grace is that undeserved favor of God by which Jesus came to suffer for our sin and die on the cross to forgive us, to make us right with God so that we live today and forever in a right relationship with God, justified, sanctified, made holy, and soon glorified in his presence. Saving grace. When we talk, though, about what happens on earth, this broken and rebellious Earth that we live on, live in and we talk about God's care for creation and providence. Then we're focusing on common grace. The favor of God given throughout creation and to all peoples. The Lord is gracious. God doesn't believe in karma either. So let's see where this can lead us. For Job, notice this. The coming of trouble doesn't mean the absence of God. God is still deeply interested and close to Job. Nothing happens outside God's knowledge and presence. Trouble does not mean that God has turned away or forgotten us. Trouble does not mean that God is limited, unwilling, or unable to help. God is still the one in authority over Job's life, and even over all the evil that comes his way, Satan must receive permission to act. Our Heavenly Father still sees Job for who he is. Mine, says God, my servant. He belongs to me, insists the Lord. Satan can only go so far and must report to God. Now, no doubt as you are listening to me and with me to this word of God, you're stumbling with me over the limits of our human language to describe all this and take it in. We look for reasons. We want to know why. Most of our suffering questions are why questions, just as most of our prayers are about God's provisions and promises. Yet even if we knew why, such knowledge wouldn't give us the grace to carry on. Such understanding wouldn't take away the pain. Job never knew why all this happened. He will never be given an answer. Because answers aren't what we need. We need the presence of the Lord. What does Job do? In verse 20, we read that Job, though in great pain, falls to the ground in worship. Job will get as close as he can to God. For in the Lord's presence is his rescue and his deliverance and his salvation. And more than anything, the Lord wants you close wants you and me to know, not just in our heads, not just as a verse we know by heart, but know in body and in soul in life and in death that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the more we have occasion to trust, the more the Lord has occasion to draw near to us. What can be our response Last week, we were encouraged to take up our role, take up the role of ministers, just as God ministers to us, to minister to friends and neighbor and family and stranger and even enemy. Not to feel responsible to take pain away or to make things right, but to bring the love and compassion and the presence and the prayer of God into a situation so God can work. That's what we said last week. But we can't be that without trusting that God is gracious. So living by grace alone is our next response our way to make the providential care of God real in our lives right now, to practice grace. Well, what is that? Well, it's not really a thing, right? It's God's God's stance toward us. It's God's attitude toward us. It's God's unmerited favor given freely to you. We can contrast and compare it this way. Karma means you get what you deserve. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. And grace means you get more than you deserved. That's the contrast. Now we said we experience grace two ways, common grace and saving grace. Each is grace is the grace of God, the favor of God that we cannot earn or merit. But let's talk a little bit about common grace, because that's the response now. When we look at this world and its brokenness and rebellion, and we want to factor in that God is providentially caring, where do we turn and and we, we lean in to this common grace of God? Abraham Kuyper sees a negative and positive working out of common grace. The negative side of it is that God restrains evil, both by natural and moral laws, but also by putting within all people a desire for what is good and right, even though that has been broken by sin. That's the negative part. The common grace of the Father keeps this world from being as bad as it could be. The positive part is that God equips human beings with knowledge or reason or truth or a hunger for beauty and the like, so that the arts and the sciences and economies and governing and loving persons and families, all of these can help people flourish. The common grace of the Father means there is beauty and truth and joy and love all around us. Sarah McLaughlin sings the song Ordinary Miracles. She sings, It's not that unusual when everything is beautiful. It's just an ordinary miracle today. Life is like a gift, they say, wrapped up for you every day. It's just another ordinary miracle today. That's the common grace of our good and gracious Heavenly Father. God's common grace is is the source of all human virtue and accomplishment. Herman Bavink, one of our great teachers, says, Think of life this way. The Spirit of God makes its home and works in all creation. That's common grace. When doctors get it right. When the police help you. When the harvest is plentiful when the song speaks to you, when laughter is shared, when science enriches life. Common grace. And we will experience the goodness of God and learn to trust in the providential care of the Father by investing ourselves then in the common good of our neighbors. And those that are around us. So, as followers of Jesus, learn to accept, humbly accept the good gift of others. Believers or not, serve in the community for the common good. Be hospitable and caring, not with an agenda, but in order to love your neighbor. And how about in church? Well, I see us doing a little of that, and I just want to accent that and, and keep that before us and in prayer and, 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 and in equipping. like Things like pads. We try to help those in need. When gems and cadets have offerings for community kids. Um, hosting the after-school program. Um, the diaconal food drives. All of this to enhance and help us Make it as, as a neighborhood, as a community. Um, the ice rink, even if winter ever comes, maybe. I don't know. All these ways to invest into our communities because God has brought beauty and goodness and, and into our community. You know, I... With all the stuff going on in my family, I couldn't make it to uh, Linda Hybors' funeral for her mom uh, yesterday. But we watched it online. And listening to her, it struck me that she was a church lady. She invested herself in people and in the community and in programs and in witnessing and in scripture And in the context of community and spiritual community, she was a church lady. And now she's gone to glory, and my question to the young people is, who's going to take her place? We need more church ladies and church men who will take up the the common good of our neighborhood where God has planted us in this place at this time among the neighbors and the contacts we have to help people flourish in the providential care of God. And as we do that, God blesses us to be more assured that yes, God is good and caring and with us and will be with us in trouble. And though the pain will come, He will help us survive and flourish through the pain. That's common grace. Now add saving grace. Salvation is all God's work. From beginning to end, from sin to forgiveness, from brokenness to wholeness, from death to new life, Jesus secures your salvation by his cross and resurrection. Grace is what defines our lives. So that's our next response. Tomorrow, you may lose your job. You might suddenly realize that your course of study is not going to work for you. Your treasured relationship may end, or your health. Know that none of these things define you because God is gracious. So let grace have the last and lasting word. Jerry Bridges reminds us, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need for God's grace. So another response in the words of Gerard Manley Hopkins, My own heart let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. Be kind to yourself and bless your neighbors the same way. What if in all the great political questions of the day that divide us, we would start with kindness? And where might that lead us to open our eyes to the presence of God's providential care all around us? I love to preach about grace. But I feel each time like the amateur photographer trying to capture the breathtaking scene before me. And the picture never quite gets it. More so when speaking about grace. And the best thing about this coming week, should the Lord give us another day, will not be the words spoken this morning or the thoughts you had, however holy, but that you tried it out. You acted graciously in the confidence that God is gracious. What does that look like? Forgive when you'd rather get even. Love, even when you don't like what's going on. Include the excluded. Serve instead of being served. Give peace a chance. Give instead of take. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And mourn with those who mourn. Just know some will not understand Grace can sound like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace can be abused, too. Just look at the cross of Jesus where grace got him. In his dying words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Gracious acts can be twisted to look like you are approving of all manner of behavior. Does grace mean anything goes? Well, if I look around, I have to answer that anything already goes. But nothing escapes the sovereignty of God. Listen to Psalm 56 from the message. You've kept track of every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered into your ledger. Each ache written into your book. And when Jesus lived among us, he kept track. The smallest offering, Jesus even noticed the poor widow give an offering of a penny. The smallest devotion, the awkward, the awkward spirituality, Jesus even protected the woman who anointed his feet with perfume. And even death, Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In the grace of God all, is in the end caught up in the glory of God. The gold, the silver, the costly stones, the wood, the hay, and even the straw. By grace through faith, even your sinful life is redeemed. All of it caught up in God's grace. Gordon MacDonald observes, Grace is the one thing the church has that you can't get anywhere else the gospel comes down to this one word, grace. And Philip Yancey challenges us, grace is not the first word that comes to mind when people think of Christians. I'm convinced that the future of the church in this new century depends on how well we master this notion, this practice, this habit of grace. So instead of dabbling in karma, how about we invest in loving our neighbor, be generous in grace, and the hope of the fatherly care of God will become evident to us all. Amen. Heavenly Father, we begin the year sharing in worship and prayer to thank you for your care. By your Spirit, guide us in the hope of Christ. May we live by faith, expectant, anticipating the love of Christ and the call of Christ to love our neighbor, to love Christ's church, and to live for the kingdom. So today, we ask a blessing on our community. We pray for local businesses and our supported them. We pray for the neighbor down the street and for uh, us to, to have time and to take time for our neighbors. We pray for the difficult social problems before us that overwhelm us and pray for a way to act kindly and respond with kindness to these big issues that even government cannot solve. We pray that we may be known for grace, and that we may invest ourselves in the common good of of the people around us, and we pray even for strangers and our enemies, that we may carry to them the love of Christ. We pray for our church today, too, that we may carry this call. Uh, Bless the programs as things and ministries start up again in the new year. Think of Sunday school today. We pray for students going back to school as they continue, uh, as you craft within them abilities and skills that they can use in your kingdom. We pray for the families of our church, for those who are single in our church, and for those families and singles in our neighborhoods as well. And Lord, would you bring your healing mercies to those in need, a measure of strength to those that we continue to pray for. We remember Hal Beatty and Patty Hop, and ask that you would provide for them and bring a source of strength to them. We lift up to you Ginny Jupp and her continued battle with cancer for strength and for a measure of, of peace and, and uh, healing. We pray that for George Van Denen as well. And I pray on behalf of my mom and my sister and our family that you surround us in your everlasting promises and the hope of eternal life and the loss of uh, our sister Dorothy this past week and ask that uh, you bring comfort especially to my brother-in-law and uh, our nephews at this time. Lord, would you watch over those who carry loss and grief into the new year? And would you uh, give them a place of peace? And for those who are aged among us also, today we remember Barb and Staldinen and Harriet Havenga, and pray for them and for their families too as they minister to them. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.